Hi, and welcome to Forest of the Future. Today we are going to return to a favorite topic and a favorite guest of mine. We are going to talk about CSR 3.0. Now, if you don't know what CSR 3.0 is, don't despair, because that's what my guest Etienne White from Let's Create Possible is here to tell us all about. And I promise you that this will be a very interesting conversation covering everything from what PP Longstocking has to do with sustainable transformation to how IKEA might source timber for their Billy bookcases in the future. We can cover as broad topics as that because in this series we look at innovation as part of the solution to the climate and biodiversity crisis that we're facing. We of course focus on forests and on FSC as part of that equation, but we also allow ourselves to go much broader. We do that because we know that it will take a multitude of tactics to protect our forests and support the mission of FSC, which is to ensure responsible management of our forests worldwide. Enough introductions. Let me invite Etienne in. Hi Etienne, welcome back. I've been looking so much forward to this conversation, I can't even tell you how much. Uh, because last time we talked, we started just dipping our toes into where companies work on sustainability might be moving to. And I had a lot of positive feedback on that episode, I have to tell you. So this time we will be dedicating a full episode to just that. So can we just start by you reminding me there's CSR 1.0, CSR 2.0, and now you're introducing us to CSR 3.0. What constitutes these different evolutions in the work on CSR? And maybe you can also just give us a bit of a glimpse. What is CSR if for those that might have forgotten? And so, of course, the lexicon is so varied and different people use the same words, sometimes meaning different things too. So for the sake of just simplicity on this podcast, then CSR can be called corporate social responsibility. And originally, let's say, I don't know, 20 odd years ago, maybe corporate social responsibility in the 1.0 stage was about compliance, making sure that you're complying with the regulations and working within existing frameworks. And also, if you were sort of going above and beyond, maybe doing less bad in the world. Companies understanding that they had a footprint, that it's often negative, and trying to mitigate against some of the worst parts of it would have been CSR 1.0. Basically, companies showing up as good citizens. But as I see it, CSR 2.0 is where we then enter the world of sustainability, where people said, wow, it is not enough to just be you know, compliant, but what if we move from compliance to inspiration? What kind of world could we and you know, should we be in? And this is where sustainability really came to the fore. And towards the end of CSR 2.0, people started talking about sustainability as not just pertaining to the environment, but pertaining to society as well. And the realization that we have multiple challenges that we need to address, not afterwards, but in tandem, in parallel, to address societal challenges at the same time as working on our environmental goals. And so really, we saw this broad term sustainability come into its own during CSR 2.0. Also, you know, towards the end of that, we had ESG come in. 
which is environmental, social, and governance. And ESG really was born from the finance side of it more and is really about the metrics of measuring how you are doing. ESG is not necessarily a vision towards a flourishing future, but it definitely provides a set of metrics that companies can report on. And so then CSR 3.0, what does that look like? And gracious of you to say I was introducing you to it, but really I'm just encapsulating where the movement and companies and businesses and countries have been going. And CSR 3.0 really is about recognizing that actually we can work towards establishing a world in which we can be regenerative. We can actually take our place as humans in the natural ecosystem and be additive, which is honestly what we were meant to be doing all along anyway. It's almost like finding ourselves again. And so really for businesses especially, they're now looking at what does regeneration look like? And so if CSR 1.0 was compliance, Mm -hmm. 3.0 is about how do we leave things better than we found them? It's not about mitigating a negative footprint. Some people have even talked now about there's lexicon around a handprint, right? Your footprint is the negative and your handprint is the positive. So what positive handprint are we leaving? as well as working to ensure a less negative footprint. And that's where you get also then things like instead of net zero, you get net positive, where we're looking now at how can business be such a force for good that we're actually leaving both the environment and society better than we found them. Everything is better for us being in existence. And that really should be the framing now that all businesses, all responsible businesses are using as a lens through everything that they do, that should be the lens that they'd be looking at. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, because do you think this will be fast enough? I mean, it's a very positive shift. We're looking at handprints instead of footprints. We're looking at regenerative. But we all also know that we're right at the edge. We're at code red for humanity. We have eight years left to go, and then we actually have to be there. Are we moving fast enough? Will we make it in time, in your opinion? I will say I absolutely don't think we're moving fast enough. And I don't know that we'll make it in time. I cannot say with confidence that I think we will. And for me personally, I have found it very helpful to follow the practice that has been identified by Joanna Macy in her book that's all around cultivating active hope. So I remain hopeful, but it's a hopefulness that needs to be cultivated. Mm -hmm. It looks to me like we are not going to be able to make it to tracking to just a simply 1.5 degree warming. I think that we will likely blow past that. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, you know, there's science out there now saying we're tracking to four degrees. And the question then will become, you know, how do we track to two? And two was, is so awful when you look at all of the resulting human life loss and biodiversity loss and all of the implications of a two degree warming. But here's the thing. I, come back to time and again, and I share it now in case it's helpful. I feel like when we get to cultivate active hope, which is when we accept that the odds might be against us, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say even with the odds being against us, what are we going to do? Are we going to sit back and let it all go? No, we still feel like we have to try. And this is where I feel like it speaks to our core DNA, if you will. You know, human civilization is full of stories of us all in one way or another beating the odds. And, you know, historically we've done that. We've told those stories about individuals. And I think now that what we need to do is start telling the stories of how we can step into a form of collective heroism. 
you know, where we are able to do this. And we are saying to ourselves, even if the odds against us collectively, we're going to join together and just go for it. And what I'm sort of dedicating myself to is how can we cultivate that type of heroic action that we need to see at scale? Mm -hmm. And what might be those stories that would inspire that kind of belief in people and feel some comfort and strength in the idea that even if we might fail, we have to try. And so that's the sort of area that I'm focused on right now is what could that collective heroism look like? It reminds me of this. There's a Swedish children's figure. She's called Pippi Longstocking. I have no idea whether that is. You know, is she really called Pippi Longstocking? But she has this fundamental, I've never done this before, but I can do it kind of vibe to her that's one of her key sayings and that what you're saying now resonates with me with in the same kind of of sentiment that if we just join forces we can do it. and i think covid at least in europe or at least in denmark where i am really was a very good example i during the pandemic i even thought oh my god please let people take all we learned from here and transferred that into sustainability, into the, the movement we have to see. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that I would be using Pippi Longstocking as an example of how we might move through during the climate crisis. But since you've brought her up, as I recall, Pippi Longstocking used to sleep with her feet on the pillow mm. and her head at the other end of the bed. And when her kitchen floor needed cleaning, she attached scrubbing brushes to her feet and skated across her floor with the, you know, the soap and the bubbles. And of course, those are delightful things for a child to read because, you know, you're kind of outside of the box and she's doing things differently. But I think there's something to be said for that. I think there's something for us to be thinking about staying open-minded, trying new things, and even making things that seem hard playful. Because Mm -hmm. the way she cleaned the kitchen floor was inspirational to me. If my mom had offered me to clean the kitchen floor that way, I'd have been right at it, right? It would have been a mess too. (laughs) I know, but it would have been so much fun and it would have got it clean, right? I think there's so much in the world of sustainability that is a should. We should do this. And also, you know, we know about Code Red. We know about the science. We know about what the IPCC reports are saying. And and we understand that, but this doom and gloom that we're messaging around it is not going to work to inspire people to get up and act. And so mm-hmm. I think making things playful in a way that Pippi attacks challenges, we could be there's a lesson for us there. I'm glad you brought her up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but do you see this as an integral part of CSR 3.0? Because in our last conversation about CSR 3.0, there was really this vibe of shifting the storyline a bit into a more positive gear of what can we then actually do? We know it will be hard. We have to accept some changes, basically. But this is what we can do. Do you see... CSR 3.0 in that way still? Yeah, I do. I also see that we have examples of people who are doing it where you don't even need to communicate a change in action that you want to see happen through the lens of sustainability. So, you know, I might be looking to buy an electric car oh my goodness, they parallel park and they're self-driving in some ways. And there's all these great things about having an electric car that make me want it, aside from the fact that it's not reliant on fossil fuels. 
Mm-hmm. depending of course on where you're getting your electricity from. So there's a there's an aspiration and an inspiration in that category that has nothing to do with sustainability. You know, I think of I think we might have talked about this before, but the loop program where you have your groceries delivered in reusable packaging, when that was launched in Dubai, that was launched as the newest coolest, you know, aesthetic trendy thing versus this is going to help us, you know, move to zero waste and it's a sustainable thing that you should be doing. And so I think that those stories are really important about how we are asking people to act in new and different ways and for us to be able to move out of the kind of shoulds, if you will. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to sit on the judges for the one show this year and having worked with Procter & Gamble, I was aware of a product that they had created, which is a detergent that you can wash in cold. And I knew all of the sort of environmental characteristics, attributes, benefits of it, but I hadn't actually seen the marketing campaign before And the marketing campaign that they used was all about American footballers and all these grass stains and mud that they have in their clothes and how washing on, you know, tide cold is still really great at getting that out. And it was really fun. And they had lots of celebrities and they had, you know, celebrity sports people and musicians. And it was just a really fun campaign. And I was watching this as a judge, having watched probably some 20 or 30 other ads that were all very worthy and aren't we great and aren't you great because this is the progress we're making together. And watching these Procter & Gamble laundry detergent ads, they were just a lot of fun. And I think there's something to be said for that. I think there's something to be said for us not reminding people of the crisis that we are in and the heaviness and the weight that comes with that. Yeah, I think that those stories of inspiration and fun and playfulness are going to be really important and painting the picture of what is the world we could be living in and let's not do it through the lens of what two degree warming looks like, even if we know that's what we're up against. You know, what can these innovations do to help us live and move into a more flourishing future? Mm-hmm. I always have a zillion follow-up questions when I talk to you and a zillion things in my mind I want to talk to you about. But one of the things I can't help but think when you mentioned Procter & Gamble as an example, and you mentioned how they they just implemented it into their advertising. It's not the, the fact that you can cold wash it isn't the primary selling point. Do you think that the fundamental difference between them and the competitors that they were up against in that competition was that sustainability for Procter & Gamble is just so baked in by now? And therefore, they don't even think about it as an extra add-on to their brand because it's just an integral part of their brand. So they don't need to boost a lot about it because it's just part of who they are. Yeah, that's a great question. Or am I giving them too much credit? (laughs) Yeah, no, I don't. Well, they still have a lot to work on, sure, right? That's I not mean, what I'm saying. Still, it's more, you know, the, the detergent's still in those big plastic bottles, but in fairness to them, they did their LCA study and where the greatest sort of hotspot was, was in the hot water being used in the, you know, scope three consumer use stage, right? And so actually to be fair to Procter & Gamble, you know, and so I have full disclosure, you know, I've worked closely with them, but I will say always from a place of great respect for what they're doing, actually, because they're very humble about the progress they've made. They're very honest and transparent about what still needs to be done. But to say it's so baked in that it's almost like an afterthought is is not accurate. So getting Tide, you know, detergent in the US to work on cold was a very deliberate part of them saying, 
to embed sustainability through our business, we need to use it as a true driver for product innovation. Mm -hmm. And so this is a fantastic example within their portfolio of products of how sustainability can be harnessed to drive true innovation, right? I think it was very deliberate. It's not so baked in that it's just there. They're still working very hard at it. So I gave them a bit too much credit there, but... They're doing great. I mean, we can give them credit for everything they've done. And I would say too, from their advertising, you look at both the environmental storytelling and also the storytelling around societal change, you know, that would hit on diversity, equity, inclusion. They are, I would say, leading the pack in their storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so there's much that other brands can can look to and learn from with them. You've mentioned innovation and product innovation and new types of products a couple of times. And I can't help but wonder, when you think about CSR 3.0 and the shift that we're seeing right now and how companies are are using sustainable actually I don't really like the word sustainability anymore because it's just too fluffy but how they're using this responsible change in the way that they conduct business how how are you seeing that connect to other things other shifts that we're seeing like like companies in their product innovation, taking a step back and looking at, well, how do we even make money? And looking into new, either circular or circular-ish business models, such as take-back schemes popping up everywhere, leasing models, business as a service, repair services, those kind of things. How do you see those things connect? Are they connected? Yes, they're absolutely connected because it's another form of innovation. It's a business innovation versus purely at the product innovation level. But all those kinds of innovations are exactly what's needed now because obviously the system that we're in is what's led to the results we're seeing. So we have to change at a fundamental and systemic level the way business is organized and how business can become fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, circular, I like your circular-ish business models, you know, take back leasing repair, absolutely that plays a role. And a circular economy is a critical part of the journey that we're going to be on. But for example, let's just, you know, bring Ikea in. So for example, Ikea adding circularity into their business model, right? So the Billy bookcases, they're designed now to not just be put together, but to be taken apart frequently, right? Mm -hmm. They're selling little parts. So if you you miss one of the screws for it, you can go get that again. They're selling secondhand Billy bookcases in their stores, right? So they're doing all of that and they're embracing the circular economy, but they are not then, and I'm sort of exaggerating to make my point here, they're not then saying, saying, okay, well, now we can walk away from our FSC commitments, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Because if you're destroying forests, but you're doing it in order to make something that you can then say, well, it's going to be in circulation for a really long time, you know, okay, but that still doesn't offset the fact that you'd be destroying forests, right? So here they are introducing and embracing and investing behind circularity models while still maintaining, you know, commitments to responsible forestry and responsible sourcing. And so my point in that is that really we have to continue to think of all our sustainability solutions as a complex ecosystem. There's no one thing that can get us out of this. And Remembering that is both inspiring because there are so many opportunities and so many different ways that we can come at this, but it is also exhausting. This is exhausting work. It would be so nice if there were really simple, clear solutions. And so I found it's a work to constantly train ourselves to hold space for this kind of complexity. It's almost like a 3D complexity, mm-hmm. right? And we really have to kind of lean into it and foster and cultivate that because it's so easy to navigate towards the sort of simple solutions. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think if you look at it, if I was IKEA, I would, what they're doing is just they're also looking at this with really long lenses on, right? They know that the forest resources will come under immense pressure. So they know that they won't be able to get enough wood for their their billy bookcases. So what do we do? Well, we actually have to ensure that we have a system set up where we can circularly use some of the fibers at least, that we institute a proper cascading use of, of the timber that we're using, because otherwise the billy bookcases will just become too expensive for regular people to buy in five, 10 years time. We're already seeing that they can't get the resources that they need. So... We know that big people like IKEA is moving in this direction. We could take H&M, a lot of the online resellers uh, or online e-commerce players are boosting with take back and resell options. But is it moving fast enough, in your opinion, this whole, let's, let's use things more than once. Is it moving fast enough? Yeah, I mean, I don't think circularity is moving fast enough. I don't think, you know, moving away from extractive, using resources that cannot be replaced, those models, I don't think any of it is moving fast enough. And I think the science would tell us that we are not accelerating change in the way that we need to. And one of the worries for me, you know, we're mentioning here companies where we're looking at what they're doing. And of course, they're not perfect yet, but we see the incredible innovation, investment, acceleration, and frankly, dedication Mm -hmm. that they're putting to this. And boldness. Yes, and a boldness. Well, we have to be bold. These times call for boldness all around from all of us. But I will say too, I think that we're seeing, and I, you know, I (laughs) hate to bring some negativity to the conversation here, but I think we're seeing a shift and this might be more US focused. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but you know, not all business is responsible and not all business is trying to be responsible. And certainly in the US, we've had a lot of climate deniers Mm -hmm. over the years. And I think we're seeing a shift now where companies and political parties even are no longer denying the climate crisis. Of course, they're calling it climate change still because it's here. You know, a third of US citizens experienced extreme weather last year, which means that if you didn't, you know someone who did. And so we're seeing now companies admitting that it exists and committing to address it. But they're really committing to doing something incremental and without the required urgency. And that is a really compelling trap for us to fall into when we hear it, especially those of us who've been in sustainability so long. Oh my goodness, they finally come around and they're committing to something and something is better than nothing. But the problem is we risk incrementalism becoming the new climate denial. Mm -hmm. Because if you accept the science, then we have to accept the urgency that's required too. And some businesses are just moving too too slowly on that front. Is there anything that we can do to help them along move faster? Oh, there's so much, right? There are lots of different axes, lots of different things that can be done. You know, the largest of which would be likely then, let's say, driving increased regulation. I do think that there's a role still for government regulating Mm -hmm. society at large, and then the finance world specifically supporting businesses that are challenging the status quo, right? As opposed to falling down hard on them when they're challenging the status quo and trying to do something better. Is there some grace that we can give them if they're not maybe hitting all of the conventional metrics? And then obviously, you know, an area that I've dedicated the last decade or more to is around driving mainstream lifestyle change towards the adoption of sustainable lifestyles. And I think what we're really understanding now is that to do that, we need to be tackling climate grief, denial and paralysis. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of third point obviously is a focus for me. And that is where the storytelling comes in, because what is the story that can then inspire action? I keep coming up with in my mind, you know, likening how we're communicating on climate crisis 
to diet and exercise. You would never go to a Weight Watchers meeting and sit around in that circle and have them say, well, look what you did to yourself this week. What were you thinking? How are you completely fell off the wagon? I can't believe these are the things you ate. This is what's going to happen to you. Change. You got to change. And you would never have someone in a Weight Watchers do that to you because we understand and we know very well the psychology of helping people change their diet and exercise, which by the way, are ingrained habits, as is most of our consumption, because we understand that, you know, we want to cheer people along. We want to take a big, large, audacious goal and break it down into easy steps that they can feel good about their progress on their journey. And so I keep thinking of how we are messaging to consumers around the climate crisis and also potentially to business too, is that we're really shaming and blaming. We need to, you know, help people break it down, help make them feel like they're on a journey with others, that there's some safety and comfort and maybe even fun to be had and the camaraderie of being on this journey with others. And that the end result is something we can really look forward to that is worth us putting the work in now. And so I think reframing in that way could be a massive help. Mm -hmm. Sounds almost like that would be connected to your collective heroism. What if I'm then a company that wants to start moving this involvement along? I want to start really doing my bit. I want to start inspiring for this collective heroism. Because I'm, I'm assuming that it's not around creating instructive ads like we were talking about in the last episode or making all of your consumers sit in a circle and saying, oh, you're doing such a great job. Like, what, what, what might you do to get started? You know, actually, sitting in a circle saying you're doing a great job, I mean, there is plenty of gamification that has already been created. You know, there's plenty of activity on social media where people are joining and there's plenty of pledges where people are in there and, you know, Know, getting points for, I don't know, turning off the lights, for example, right? Using their bike instead of their car. I think the thing for brands, for companies, yes, they might be scared of kind of how to start this communication because it feels too little or too late. They do have to be careful with their audience that they are not seen as instructing them to didactically on what they need to do. So I, I think that there is work that there is a role that brands can play there. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Brands really are helping drive the creation of culture at large. And, you know, we think of TikTok, for example. You know, Google has been the most visited site every year for gosh knows how many years now, right? And last year, TikTok globally was the most visited website ever. What does that tell you? Normally, you go to Google for information. I want to be informed. And if now the majority of people are not going to Google anymore, they're going to TikTok. TikTok, you're not going for information. You're rarely going for education. Really what you're going for is entertainment. Mm. And so culture is already telling us what it's hungry for. Culture is hungry for stories and it wants to be entertained. That's what society wants right now. And so I think that brands can look at that as a trend and a lens through which they can plan what their activations will be and how will they entertain people. Brands need to be thinking, how can we serve up sustainability in a way that's going to be entertaining? So what, what if you were then the, the marketing and comms lead for a company, where would you start? That's a great question. And we talked about this a little bit in the last podcast. So if you're 
listening and didn't hear the last podcast, go back and listen. But we talked a little bit there about that. And we talked about how really consumers want to live more sustainably, but often don't understand the how and what those easy actions are that they can take. And when we think back to it, you know, that kind of old school advertising model, even from the 1950s, where you were really showing product demonstrations to people like, this is the new thing and here's how you use it. We really need to show the sustainability demonstrations. A person grabbing their to-go coffee cup from home in the morning, someone cycling instead of driving in the ad, you know, all of these things where we really need to show clearly and, and we can even be swapping it out, you know, the old 1950s. Would you, would you swap this product for that one? And people say, no, I want to stay with this. It was so great. It's so easy to swap and make these daily changes. So I think there's something to be said for advertising, making a full scale shift. And we talked about that in the last podcast. I think the other thing that I would do if I was marketing comms lead is I would now switch focus a little bit and and potentially this is company wide but definitely within marketing to adaptation so we are looking at mitigating against the climate crisis but for many we are already seeing it we're already seeing it show up for many people it's through extreme weather is one of the ways and i think that there's a role for brands to help folks be and learn adaptation skills mm-hmm. and fostering resilience. And I think if brands are both culture creators and culture keepers, that there is a big role there for brands to play in helping us as consumers be nimble, be able to flex, be able to cope in a crisis. We've seen the pandemic through, you know, everyone and everyone's mental health suffered as a result. And I think business can really help us understand that we live in very uncertain times anymore. I saw a meme recently that said, could we not have any more unprecedented times, please? You know, I don't, I don't want to live in unprecedented times anymore. And I saw it and I was like, oh, I just relate to that so much. That really resonates. Every day there's a new unprecedented times headline about something. And I think brands have a role to play in helping us shift our culture so that we can see ourselves as being adaptive, as being resilient, as being nimble, as being able to embrace change and and to live with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. We know that we need brands potentially to help us in the Western developed part of the world look into, well, how, how can we adjust as human beings? Do you think that's culturally a given for every part of the globe? Or do you think there's difference in that different places in the globe? Gosh, of course, there's difference in different places in the globe. And there are different countries that are at different stages of their economic development. You know, there are lots of countries saying, why would we be deprived of the opportunities for, you know, growth at the sake of all costs and all of the wonderful consumption opportunities that might come with that, that you in the global north have enjoyed for so long? You know, how dare you stymie us on our ability to access that. I do see at a societal level, you know, we often talk about ourselves and obviously, you know, you're in Europe Mm -hmm. and you're white and I'm white originally from Europe and now living in the US. And so we have a very specific cultural lens that we are viewing things through. And honestly, it's a culture that's shaped our, our beliefs, even though at times we might try and step outside of those beliefs and conditioning, right? But I think that for so long, and especially 
you know, when we worked together at FSC in the NGO world, we would talk about, you know, the poor global South. And I'm looking at some of the countries, you know, I'm looking at change that's happening at a societal level in Central and South America right now, and it is inspirational. They are leading on how to react, how to change, how to build a resilient society. They see those old world post-capitalist powers like the US and the UK, for example, or, you know, Northern Europe even, moving towards fascist models maybe. And I think we can really be inspired by some of the change, the societal change that's happening in the South right now. And we should, you know, drop our arrogance and our worldview of thinking that we're leaders and, and take a look around us and see where actually others are doing better than we are. And what could we learn from that? Mm-hmm. I just asked you to reflect on if you were the marketing lead, but but would you also look to the global South if you were a CEO or where would you start if you were the CEO? Where would you get your inspiration and what would you start thinking about doing? Ta-da, you're now the CEO of a giant company. Here you go, Etienne. What are we doing? Well, gosh, and I'm not the CEO of a large company. And so it's very easy for me to sort of pontificate about what they should be doing from the outside, um, not actually living those sort of day-to-day pressures. But some of the high-level areas that I would be looking at if I were a CEO right now, honestly, of a company, you know, sort of large, medium, or small, there is an interesting conversation happening right now within the sustainability sphere around degrowth. And I, as a CEO, would want to dig into that and understand what can degrowth look like for companies. We're seeing consumers are going there already. We're seeing, you know, this great resignation, this great reset. We're seeing consumers value, you know, a quality of life over a paycheck and mental health over what's in their bank balance. In the culture and society that we've been brought up in, that's not been the balance that we've seen. Mm -hmm. We're seeing experiments in universal basic income. We're seeing experiments, you know, universal basic income, obviously at a government level, but we're seeing experiments both at a government level and a business level in four day weeks, right? So if I was CEO now, I'd be looking seriously at this current extractive system that is based on growth at all costs. And the marker then for success of growth of, you know, growth at all costs, what would this new marker of success be? You know, what if as a society, we would start measuring our thriving scores versus our GDP? Mm -hmm. And what would the knock-on effect be of that reframing at a societal level on business? So what does a thriving business look like that is not chasing growth at all costs? Target is a very large retailer in the US and they recently announced some not great business results having had you know multiple consecutive quarters probably even years now of growth and the market treated them terribly after they had one bad quarter their share price dropped significantly you know the lowest low it's had in 30 odd years and i just think to myself wow well they were doing so well for so long and in the eyes of you know the stock market and shareholders they really are only as good as their last 90 days mm-hmm. and that It's so sad. It's so sad that that is our measure of success for a company. How on earth are they meant to take, you know, you talked about IKEA taking the long view. How on earth are they meant to take the long view if we are going to measure them and demote them and devalue them based on how they've been in the last 90 days? Mm -hmm. And so as a CEO, I'd be looking at how do you make money? How do you run profitably in a degrowth model? And you can. And, you know, what are the biomimicry stories and lessons for us there because a forest does not grow in perpetuity up 
or out, right? Mm -hmm. But yet there's always growth within the forest. And so what does that look like if we reframe that within a business context? We can't keep wanting to be the tallest tree in the forest or the tree with the most leaves. What does it look like if we see ourselves as being within an ecosystem where there is always cycles of, of rebirth, of death, of growth, and it is not growth for the sake of growth and growth at all costs? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and I think I do think as CEO, I would also be looking at that move from mitigation, which is still so important at a climate level, but really to adaptation. And then I think too, COVID told us what many of us within the sustainability sphere already knew about the global supply chains and global interdependencies that we have. I think depending on how large the company is that you've put <laughs> me in as CEO here, I think I'd be looking at... Yeah, I decided. Well, we're global. We're everywhere. Uh, we, I think I would be looking at what are the bioregional solutions that we need to be looking at, you know, whether that's sourcing, supply, availability of product. You know, maybe there's a product that isn't available globally anymore. It's just close to where it's produced. And so bioregional solutions are going to be important for companies to be looking at. Can you just define bioregional? What, what do you mean by that? You know, for example, should we be eating bananas and avocados if they're not close to us and what products with, you know, multiple integral pieces in them are being, you know, pieces shipped from the U.S. to be assembled in China to then be sent to Europe. When we looked at what happened with the supply chains in a global pandemic, everything shut down. I'll give you an example, actually. I live in rural southwest Wisconsin in ostensibly what you could call a food desert. I would have to drive about 45 minutes to get to a proper supermarket from where I live. And there's a wonderful cafe restaurant that's a good half hour from from my place. And they were getting all their food delivered on a big Cisco truck every week. And that big Cisco truck with all the ingredients they could need stopped delivering during the beginning of the pandemic. And guess what they found? They found that they're connected to more than 50 local farms that could supply all the food they needed. They just needed to know who those farmers were. And they made that happen. And they kept that cafe and that restaurant going. They weren't open for business. They were doing, you know, pull-up service. And then they started doing big family meals and trays that you could take and reheat at home because everyone was so bored of their own cooking at home. And so they were a great example of a resilient business, but they had been getting all their food from a truck, you know, with a central distribution center in Chicago, I think. And so, and yet they realized it was all right here on their doorstep. And now the food is healthier. It's not got such big carbon footprint because it's not traveled so far. A lot of their vegetables are from an organic farm locally that they weren't connected with. If the Procter and Gambles and the Ikeas of the world were to look into what bioregional solutions look like, does that mean the Billy bookcases are made of different wood in different countries because they are sourced regionally? What would those solutions look like? And, and that'd be a really interesting lens for companies to start looking through. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. You've been talking at this from the environmental lens, right? Of how do we source? Where do we get our products? How do we make our products? What about the whole society lens uh, if you're a CEO? Yeah. From a societal perspective, you know, we need to stop treating DEI as something separate to sustainability. It is absolutely baked in. So DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so within that, we have obviously making sure that we are 
including and treating fairly and giving space to and even adapting spaces if we need to for everyone, whether you are LGBTQI, whether you are differently abled, whether you are gender fluid, whether you are of a different race, all of those things are included in DEI. And actually, I do like there is another version of it floating around, which is DEIJ, or as some people call it, Jedi, a bit of a Star Wars reference there, J-E-D-I. And what you have in there with the addition of the, of the letter J is justice. And justice gets you one step closer to action, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're thinking about, oh, yes, I'm hosting this you know, conference and it's inclusive of everyone and everyone's going to be treated equally and I'm going to make sure that there are diverse stakeholders represented. Okay, I checked the boxes and that's done. But was it just, was my approach to it one that delivered justice to people? That gets me a little closer to action. So for me, the definition of sustainability absolutely needs to have all, you know, things Jedi or DEIJ incorporated into them. You know, if I was CEO now in the US, the role of business delivering to society has just fundamentally shift, absolutely fundamentally shifted in the last 10 days here in the US. And that is because now we are seeing that business is taking on even more of the social contract that previously was conducted and delivered by the government. So we had a a contract of civil society saying, you know, we got you on your reproductive health care. And now we're seeing that actually it needs to be business that needs to ensure reproductive health care and health care rights for their employees. And so I would be doing a lot of thinking and exploratory on what are the systems that are going to deliver Jedi solutions there where we have justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Just as a quick example, right? We've seen And of course, I'm talking about the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the US. We've seen some companies stepping up saying we are going to actually, if you want to change state because you're living in a state where that's no longer accessible to you, we will pay to relocate you. We've seen other companies come up and say we are going to cover any expenses if you need to travel out of state to access reproductive health care and we'll also pay for a support person. And this is great, but interesting and also frightening all at the same time. It's great that they are stepping up. It's frightening because of the implications of it. So first of all, some of the companies that are stepping up and saying they're going to help their employees are also the ones who contributed to the lobbyists that work to overturn Roe v. Wade. So now we start to see, you know, these big global companies is that some of them actually operate like small countries where there are multiple parties at play within them. And so it likely wasn't you know, an HR budget that was used to fund the lobbyists, but it's definitely an HR budget that's going to be paying to relocate employees to different states. And all of this, of course, rolls up to the CEO. So I think we'll see more pressure and more optics there. But what really is sort of frightening to me about this, you know, it'd be one thing if the shift was happening and we'd already achieved all of our goals around justice diversity, equity, and inclusion, but we haven't. We still see, you know, the gender pay gap being horrific, very large, it got larger during COVID and it doesn't look like it's closing or or catching up anytime soon. And so, you know, I think, uh, you know, of an employee who maybe has a boss who's not great at approving 
holiday time, vacation time, right? How do you then put in your request to your boss that you're going to need to be out of state? How do you fill in your expense form and submit that for the costs that you incurred and the support person that was with you? Will someone do this and it'll be, you know, flawless and easy, but maybe in six months time, they don't get that promotion that they were thinking that they would get. And they're wondering if any of that is at play. I just think that the privacy issues, the personal vulnerability that we're requesting of people to bring more than they'd ever bring to work before, I think the implications from this are profound. And so we've seen a lot, you know, on LinkedIn or, you know, in business publications about how great companies are that they're stepping up. But it is frightening to me that there is no real process for how this is going to be delivered in a just way. And so I think it really brings up the question, this and all the other things that we just talked about with the CEO, you know, everything ladders up to the CEO. And so the question is now, where does the moral compass of the company sit? And what are the checks and balances that are going to keep that compass pointed to the North Star? What were the checks and balances that would have maybe stopped contributions to lobbyists or maybe would have stopped product innovation on a new product that's much less sustainable than the iteration before it? Where are those checks and balances? How is the CEO being held accountable for ensuring that that North Star is reached at all times? Who do you think that role falls back on? Is that the board? Is that somebody external? Is that regulation? Like who's supposed to hold that CEO accountable? Is that consumers? Who is it? You know, actually, it's everybody, right? To to varying degrees. Of course, boards and of course, shareholders. And as I said before, you know, we saw in the case of Target and their share price tumbling. Right now, stock market, financial institutions, analysts are not very kind to companies. They didn't actually do anything wrong. They just didn't make their sales goal, right? Having made it consecutively for quarters at a time. So, you know, what if they were to step out and do something that was, you know, really important and helped society and that stopped them making their financial forecast. And again, not target, could be anyone. And so, yes, we need to look at the the board makeup. We need to look at analysts, investors, stock market. How are we measuring success for companies? What are the key markers of success? Where are we giving grace and not expecting them to always abide by a purely financial model? What are the true metrics that we're measuring their ESG commitments by? That in itself could be a whole nother podcast. And yes, absolutely, consumers are keeping them accountable. And don't forget, that employees are consumers too and that we've seen mm-hmm. you know much more employee walkout we've seen employee protests at shareholder meetings we you know around sustainability we're seeing much more activated and engaged employee groups than ever before and this could then be a whole other podcast which is like what are gen z doing now that we're really seeing them in the workforce and changing the nature of work and changing the future of work and what will gen alpha bring as they enter the workforce too because we're already seeing some character traits with that generation that are really interesting and we could we could dive into so absolutely a ceo is accountable to everyone that is the multi stakeholder system that we that we should be moving to but it's not what's dominant right now and so for a lot of ceos the pressure they're under is truly an economic and financial performance pressure. And we need to develop systems of accountability that go beyond that. Mm -hmm. And shift that kaleidoscope, I guess. I can't remember now which company it was. I read an article of of one of the big big, big ones where the, the CEO just kept refusing only reporting on a financial level, but had... Paul Pullman. Yeah. Yes. yes. 
that was years and years ago. So it was Paul Pullman when he got to Unilever mm-hmm. and he said, I refuse to do the 90-day reports mm-hmm. and I refuse to give 90-day updates because the mission we're on cannot be derailed by how we're doing on this 90-day train that mm-hmm. we're on. You know, I've worked in public companies where you'll come out of one investor call and, the, and you debrief with the CEO and the job is, okay, these are the things we need to do in time for the next investor call. Not these are the things we need to do to hit the five-year plan, or these are the things we need to do that are the right things to do that take longer. And the focus is very much this sort of 90-day cycle. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it was Paul Pullman. And if you look now, obviously, at the cadre of brands that have for over a decade now outperformed other brands at Unilever, which are those with the sustainability attributes baked in, you see, you see the success they've had there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Etienne, first of all, You are going to get invited back. I can promise you now already. We will have a ton of different topics. We might as well do a series potentially if you're off for it. But last question, because we're we're running really short on time. This is one of the longer episodes. But I always end on this so that guests get to have an outlook and potentially, hopefully, have some positivity out there in the horizon. So, Etienne, if I didn't call you up a year from now, and I know that I will, Where will we have gotten to? Where will you personally have gotten to? What what will you be working on as well? Thank you. Great question. I think in a year's time, we will have seen many businesses step up because they will have understood this urgency. I think we will have seen those who are in that sort of medium ambling stage really start to sprint. We'll see those, you know, some of whom we've talked about today who are already sprinting, doing more to help others come along. I think we'll still have some naysayers and some people stuck in the world of incrementalism. I cannot possibly say in a year's time where we'll be on the science of it. I know that it will all still be urgent. I hope that we'll all still be in reach and that we'll still have the possibilities that we have now ahead of us. And then specifically, personally, I am working on a book that is all about storytelling in the Anthropocene. And we've touched a little bit on the role of storytelling and the importance of storytelling. And so I'm putting all of this together to be a guide for marketeers and other business leaders to help them lean into stories that are going to drive and inspire action, both at a societal level with consumers, but also with their employees too. That sounds so amazing. So I'm going to invite you back on that alone, I think. (laughs) Thank you so (laughs) much for your time, Etienne. It's been amazing as always. It's always a great pleasure to to talk to you and, and to get a glimpse into your world. Let's hope that we do get those stories out there. I want that collective heroism and I'll do my bit to get to it with all of the companies that I work with. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Loa. That's it. I already can't wait to invite Etienne back on the show and talk about lots more on how we might get to a place where we move fast enough and where we turn that kaleidoscope enough for us to see the true value of products, the true value of people, of nature, and not just look at everything from a linear profit lens. I, for one, will do my very best to spark collective heroism and to inspire others to do so as well. I hope that you as well will join me in Etienne and that crusade. If you want to get notified every time there is a new episode of Forest for the Future out, or if you just want to follow our work, I encourage you to join our LinkedIn group. It's called FSC Digital Innovations and it's open for everyone. You can also always get in touch with me on digitalinput at fsc.org. I am Laura Worm and this was Forest for the Future.